Well, amen, and I thought I would chest out the VBS spirit here. I have not really been able to participate in one in my life before, so I kind of like that. Happy Father's Day to you all. And for those of you, some of you know Christ, and you weren't raised with a father that pointed you to Jesus, and so, I mean, that's almost a miracle in and of itself, but for then those of us who did have a godly influence, a dad at home to teach us in the ways of the Lord, how much more blessed are we and thankful for those dads. And so if you're not able to be with your dad today, you call him and you, you thank him for setting the tone in the household. This morning we do begin a new book. We finished the book of Ephesians last time, so Anybody have any idea what book we're going to be in today? Very led by the Spirit there, Greg. Okay. Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Those of you who don't know, you can go home and kind of look through and see how did he come to the conclusion that we're going to be in Philippians this morning. As we read through the book of Philippians together over the next few weeks, what you're going to see is that it's apparent that the author is excited, is thrilled about life. It would seem that he is on vacation, like in Fiji, laying out there on the beach, the turquoise waters in the background, just having a relaxing time, writing this letter on joy. Except that what he's really doing is he's writing this letter on joy from a Roman prison, chained to a guard, awaiting trial, not knowing if he's going to be befriended or beheaded by Caesar. He doesn't have an attorney dream team. He doesn't have some cable news program bringing on House of Representatives and congressmen to make an appeal to a foreign government to let him go or anything along those lines. Most would read this and say that he is completely at the mercy of the Roman legal system. Of course, I think the Apostle Paul would say that he was completely in the hands of Almighty God. But if there ever was a time, and we would even understand, I think, as Christians, if there was ever a time where a letter, an epistle, would be sort of heavy, maybe even a little depressing or a little bit discouraging, it might be in a situation like this. But except the exact opposite is true. 16 times in the book of Philippians, we see the word joy or rejoicing. And 40 times in the book, we see the reason for the joy, and that is the name of Jesus Christ because he's the source of our joy. Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Joy as an emotion or as a feeling or as a sensation within us always is, always will be superior to happiness. There's nothing wrong with happiness. I'm all for happiness. I want us to be happy. But happiness has its basis in our physical circumstances. You know, we're usually happy when things are smooth, when things are under control in our life, usually when things are quiet. We like that a little bit. But then as soon as those things go out the window, as, as soon as there's an interruption, as soon as things get messy, then our happiness is gone. But joy is deeper because it has its basis in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and the promise that he has made for us. And because the source of our joy is found in Jesus Christ, then joy is something that never has to change in our lives. So imagine that you were to go to the doctor today and you were to be diagnosed with a very serious illness and yet you could walk away with like a a strange sort of sense of peace that would come upon you in spite of that diagnosis. Or you were to show up tomorrow and you were to get a pink slip from your boss and yet not be too worried about that. Now what does that come from? And if you will accept, if you will come along this ride here through this book and believe in the very simplest base message here in the book of Philippians, It will allow you to be free in your heart, uh, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what you're chained to, or no matter what you seem to be imprisoned by. Perhaps the secret 
to joy is the way that we think. Perhaps it is what we believe. And when I say what we believe, I mean something that we believe that really monitors and moves our way of thinking. It has a predominant influence on our life. What we believe is the secret to our joy. That's the whole deal right there. Proverbs 23 says, for as a man thinks within himself, so he is. The thing that's difficult sometimes, and you know this to be true when you're down or discouraged, is it is hard to change your heart. You can change your mind, and God can change your heart, but God will not change your mind. You have to choose how you're gonna think about a given situation. God's gonna allow you to think the way you're gonna think. But if I change my mind, God can and will change my heart. If I choose to change the way I look at the circumstances around me, no matter how dire they might be, then God will align my heart accordingly. Many years ago, you might remember when Princess Diana died, there was public outrage among the British people because the flag wasn't flying over Buckingham Palace. You see, even the death of the beloved Princess Diana was not enough to change a royal tradition. You see, the flag never flies above Buckingham Palace, not even at hasp mast, unless the queen is in residence, and Queen Elizabeth at the time was away. Well, it's been said that joy is like a flag that indicates that King Jesus is in residence within our hearts. And of course, this book is all about joy, but the message is that our flag that represents our joy is oftentimes at half mass. It's present, but it's present amidst difficulty and trial and setback and discouragement and bewilderment. It's actually, and you're going to see this, and we won't get this far today, but it's actually a gift that we've been given by God to actually suffer on behalf of him and still reflect joy to a world that would not understand it. In fact, may just, just might marvel when they see it in you knowing what you're going through. So the theme of the book of Philippians is joy, but you might say that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy at half mass, because both in the circumstance in which the Apostle Paul writes this letter, and also in the circumstance in which the church in Philippi was founded, you could say that Paul was definitely at half mass. If you remember how the church was founded, you go to Acts chapter 16, Paul is there with Silas and Timothy and Luke, and they're making their way to Philippi there. And everything that we know about what God did there in forming that early church is simply amazing. You're talking about a church there, or a city, it was a colony really, which is like a little piece of Rome away from Rome, where military officials or government officials would go to retire. It was heavily Gentile area. In fact, the Jewish people were required in any city where they settled, if there was at least 10 or more Jewish adult males, they were required to build a synagogue. But there was no synagogue in the city of Philippi, which tells us that there was not a strong presence, a strong Jewish presence. There's virtually no presence at all. And so God takes a few people, he converts them through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and when you look at the first few people that were saved, they seem about as least likely to support rapid church growth operations as any group of people would ever be. He first meets this woman by the name of Lydia. She's a seller of purple fabric. Again, in that day, the worm that was needed to create the dye for the purple fabric was so rare that that would have meant that Lydia was probably very wealthy, like the equivalent of like a diamond broker or something like that today. Well, God got a hold of her heart and she opened up her heart to God as a result of that ministry. And then she opened up her home to Paul and the guys and also to the early church there as well. Next, maybe a, a few days later, Paul's walking down the road with Silas and Timothy and all of a sudden this demon-possessed woman starts following them around and she was one who would have represented 
a person that would have brought tremendous wealth to her owners through fortune telling and that kind of thing. And she followed them around saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation, which is true. But after a few days of just saying that over and over and over again, the apostle Paul, the Bible says, got greatly annoyed, which comforts me because it, it's good for me to know I'm not the only one who gets greatly annoyed as a Christian. And so Paul, he doesn't need, nor does God need the advertising of the devil and just muddies the water. And so he just turns to her and he casts out the demon, which again represents this huge income loss to her owners. They get upset, causes a huge riot and an uprising within the city. And Paul and the guys are beaten and they're in prison and they're thrown into the dungeon and they're put in stocks. Well, you probably know the story from there, right? Right around midnight, Paul and Silas, I think they might have been at a swap meet, picked up an old Mike Hadley CD from the 70s and started singing some worship music. Oh, did I say something wrong? Um, started singing some worship music there. Talk about joy, right? You're in the middle of a prison. You're in prison for doing nothing really wrong, for casting out a demon out of a poor person. They start singing songs. All of a sudden, the Lord causes an earthquake to happen. The cells are open. The chains are loose, and the keeper of the prison, they're sensing that everybody had escaped. You know, thinking, and then he's responsible. Everyone escaped. He takes out his sword, turns it on himself. He's about to take his own life when the Apostle Paul stops him and says, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. The prison keeper immediately runs over to Paul and Silas. He falls down, trembling on the ground, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And isn't it interesting the response that Paul said? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Well, that guy got saved and the Bible tells us his entire household was saved as well. So you have Lydia, the seller of purple, very wealthy woman. You have a demon-possessed girl and you have a Roman jail keeper and their family and they become the first converts to make up the very first church in the history of Europe. And so people start to get saved and pastors and deacons are raised up and it's very successful. And there's this great relationship between Paul and these people. And that's why you'll notice throughout this letter, there's such a very delicate tone in the way Paul writes. First one says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. And of course, bond servants, just a slave by choice to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And I'm not gonna belabor the point, but it's something that seems like we have to go over every time we get to this point. It's something for maybe people that might be new to the church body or just new to church in general that you have to explain because you see the word saint there. That is the audience that Paul is writing to. And so the first question is, well then what in the world is a saint? Especially in light of the fact that it's a little bit confusing today because of what the Roman Catholic Church has done to the concept of saint. Because according to the Roman Catholic Church, you have to, once you're dead, then they have this panel of people that review the situation. They have like a devil's advocate that argues against and someone who argues for, and they see that that person lived a virtuous life, and then they go to see if they can authenticate at least one or two miracles that happened as a result of them in their life. So right away we know in looking at this text right here that we have a problem because Paul is writing this letter to the saints who are in Philippi. I assume he's writing to people that are very much alive and not dead. So it seems to run totally contrary to the way in which some people would say today a saint is. Notice right after it says saints, it says in Christ Jesus. And that's the textbook definition of a saint is someone who is in Christ Jesus. We saw that in our study of Philippians, what it means to be in Christ Jesus, to be born again of the Spirit of God, to be in Christ Jesus. The word there for saint means holy. It means to be set apart. And so as a result of that word, you think about what that means, to be holy. No one can be holy except to be made holy by the shed blood of Jesus Christ being applied to their life by grace through faith. But set apart is the way that a Christian is to live our life. And the only way that we're gonna be made holy and set apart is by the grace of God. Verse two says, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you veterans been walking with the Lord for some time now are probably wondering, is he going to do that whole grace and peace thing? Yeah, I'm going to do it. I got the microphone, you don't, so that's what we do. Sometimes you wonder, you say, well, Paul, you know, he wrote all of these letters and he always begins grace and peace and grace and peace and grace and peace. And you think, because I think, couldn't the Holy Spirit have come up with some kind of a different sort of a greeting other than this? And he doesn't, and I believe he doesn't do it by design. I think he's, more and more, I've just become convinced that he continues along these lines feeling like we need to hear it over and over and over again, that believers need to hear this again and again so that each time we come to it, we're reminded of it. So important. So you've heard it said, I'll say it again, grace and peace, always in that order. It's never peace then, grace. Why? Because without first experiencing the grace of God, you cannot know the peace of God. Why is that important? Because the whole world wants peace. Everybody wants peace. And I'm afraid that they think to find peace, that they've got to scale the mountaintop somewhere in the ancient Orient to find some guru and have some conversation and figure out the secret to peace, when in reality, that's just simply not true. But I think in more than anything, because again, this is written to saints, right? That grace and peace is a reminder for us as believers that we can never ever forget in our lives. Because if I fall into the trap of approaching God on the basis of my works, and I forget about the fact that he deals with me every single day on the basis of grace, then I'll never have peace. That is, if I'm honest with myself. If I'm honest with myself, and I know, yes, I've been delivered by the shed blood, but I still mess up, I still fall short, I still sin from time to time. I'll never feel good enough to enter into the presence of God. I'll never feel good enough if that's the case. And so what ends up happening? I mean, let me just ask you this morning. Don't shout out, but actually don't ever shout out in church, but don't shout out, but how many of you, veterans especially, have been walking with the Lord for some time, you sin, you miss the mark, you, you go back and go, wow, what I wouldn't do to do that evening over again. Or that conversation. You just think about something even recently in your life and you think about what you've been through and you wonder sometimes, do you not fall into this trap? I know I do. Or as a result of that sin and God brings that sin to us, it's a conviction that we feel and we acknowledge that sin. But then how many of you feel like you've got to lay low for a few days and beat yourself a little bit or punish yourself a little bit before you feel like you can truly go before God in boldness again? And some of you are looking at me and you're going, well, I don't know if I do that. Well, let me ask you, how much did you pray yesterday? How much did you pray this morning? Did you pray as if you were forgiven by the grace of God the last few days? Or did you pray like there was some sort of barrier because of your sin? So I know I get caught up in that all the time. It's easy to do. We tend to pray more in two circumstances. One, when we're just totally desperate. That's oftentimes, though, when he's brought us to a place of brokenness where then we have no choice. We just come and we repent. We fall flat on our faces. We're just like, God, I need you. Or we tend to pray more when we think we're being good. But I got a newsflash for you. You're never good. You've never been good. You never really will be good. But you somehow maybe internalize or start to think that you are sort of good, and that's why you pray or pray a little bit more. Now here's the thing. Since peace is the result of God's grace and not my works, because it's the result of God's grace and not my works. Here's what's great about peace. I can rob myself of peace. But if I believe by faith that peace is a result of God's grace, then peace is just like joy. In that, peace can be a constant in your life. The world can experience moments of peace, right? Maybe the kids are out of the house and Husband and wife are having a nice dinner and they're relaxing and they can experience moments of peace. 
but because, again, if joy has to do with right thinking, then along the same lines, if I trust in the grace of God, then I have access to peace all the time. Now, you'll notice also a little bit differently about this book than some of the other books that the Apostle Paul has written. He does not come right out and claim his apostleship right away. He doesn't feel the need to establish his authority. This is a warm letter. He's not addressing any particular heresy or sin in the church. He's basically writing a thank you letter to friends. He says, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So that's a very, very warm relationship, isn't it? I mean, I could see myself about most of you all saying, I thank my God when I think about you half the time, but then the other half of the time I'm bothered by it. I'm just trying to get over that and I'm just teasing. But that's what he's saying here by inspiration of the Spirit, that every time he thinks about the people in Philippi, he thanks God for them. He says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. One of the things, and we'll talk about this over time, we'll talk about not just the perspective of joy, but the keys to walking around with joy. One of the keys to that, you'll see Paul demonstrates and models it for us right away, is he's always thinking about others and not himself, especially in light of what he was going through. We could understand if Paul was selfish, if his prayers were totally consumed by himself and his circumstances, instead of, well, upon every remembrance of you, I always thank God for you. He could have thought about Philippi and how he was imprisoned by you know, the jailers there and beaten by mobs and annoyed by demons. But instead, he thinks about the saints and he remembers the great fondness that he had for them. And so what he's basically communicating to them is, look, every time I just kind of think about you, I just stop, I drop everything, and I praise God, I thank God for you. That's wonderful. Who does that, by the way? I tell you, your neighbor doesn't do that, your unsaved family member doesn't do that, the coworker in the cubicle next to you doesn't do that if they don't know God. The only person who's going to do that is someone who has true joy. True joy enables someone to be focused on other people, and it's a special thing. Many of you know, but I'll share with you. I remember after my old pastor was in the hospital and almost died and they had him sedated for two weeks and he had just woken up and my wife and I went in to see him and when he saw us he sat up in his hospital bed and started weeping and saying I've been praying for you because he had heard that my wife had had a miscarriage he had almost died he had been through agony he had essentially been in a coma for a couple weeks and his thought was on someone else It's not a credit to the man per se as much as it is the Holy Spirit's presence inside of that man enabling him to have a perspective that would give him joy and be centered on others. This is a really beautiful thing to say about God's people that we could thank God upon every remembrance of each other. And I was joking earlier, but I'm serious right now. You know, I work here at the church and I have a wonderful staff and we have a great time together during the week, but I can tell you that they would say the same, that we can't wait to get to Sundays to see you all. And I do, I thank God upon every remembrance of you all. And I would encourage you with something also. I've been a part of several church bodies and we're very, very fortunate here. That's the truth. We're very, very fortunate. We've been blessed by God. One of the things that people tell us when they come here and they're new, or if someday they have to move away or something, they always talk about the people here and just how blessed they have been by God to experience these kinds of relationships. So if you're here this morning and you're visiting and you're not plugged in right now to a church family, I just tell you, you're really missing out. There's something that is so special about being able to say, there's no one in your life, there's no one in your life that you know that's an acquaintance of yours, that just every time you think about them, you just thank God for them, except for people that truly know God and share a kindred spirit, a like-mindedness about them, that have the joy of the Lord as a result 
of that. Paul could honestly say, I thank God, verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So this is one of these mountaintop verses you've heard so many times before, and it Sometimes we even, it loses a little bit of its value because of how quotable it is. And you almost have to really break down the components. Couple things there. First of all, notice that you're God's work. You're not your own work. And I think that that's needed to be said. Because oftentimes I think it is sad when a Christian feels like that they have to do things on their own strength. That when they get to a place in their walk where they think they know so much about God or they think they've heard that Bible study before, or they've heard that message on joy or on Philippians, and so they just gotta do it themselves this week because they're not gonna be fueled by anything God says this morning because I've already heard that before. And they get to a place where they're trying to do it in their own strength, but it's God's work. You are God's work. You are not your own work. There's a sense in which we partner with God in that process and we need to cooperate but it's very important. I think also along the lines, just take it a step further too. Oftentimes, it's easy to get impatient with yourself along the way. It's easy to look at things in your life and go, why hasn't that changed? Why am I still struggling with this kind of sin? Why am I still tempted by this sort of thing? How did I lose my cool in that instance? And you have to remember too, that it is God's work that he's doing in you. And then the second thing you need to notice there is that God will, he will complete that work. You know, when God saved you, when God saved me, he saved a project, right? He calls us a work, but he calls us a good work that he's doing in our lives. And we think that we began something when we became Christians. Well, I began to be a Christian, but really, he's the one. And what he wants us to know this morning is, hey, I want you to be confident of this. I'm going to bring it about to completion. It is very comforting to know for those of us that are in Christ Jesus this morning that God never ever starts a work and then fails to complete it. Do you know anyone, and you probably do, who is really good at starting projects uh, but not finishing them? And it's Father's Day, ladies, so don't raise your hands. And I already know most of your husbands anyway. Maybe you heard before that Michelangelo in Florence, Italy, they have a whole museum dedicated to his unfinished projects. But God doesn't have any unfinished works at all. God doesn't begin a work in you only to kind of leave you hanging in your current state. We just have to have faith in him. He does not have a garage full of unfinished projects. And Paul knew that the saints in Philippi were one of God's projects. And so he had great confidence when he thought about them. Verse 7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, notice that, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. You get the picture, you get the sense right, that as Paul is writing this letter, it's like he's literally chained as he writes the letter as he's writing on that scroll that's gonna go to this church in Philippi. And keep that in mind as we wrap up here in a little while. For God is my witness, verse eight, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So he's gonna write out a little prayer for them here and by the way just as a side note have you ever received in writing a prayer that someone said on your behalf like maybe they put it as a message on your facebook or they text you that they prayed for you or an email or something along those lines if you have you know how special that is that someone took the time to stop amidst their busy day and write out for you a prayer and when we pray we know the holy spirit intercedes on our behalf to show us what to pray for, and so you just open up your ears to that and go, wow, this is awesome. Awesome that they took the time to do that. Awesome that they had the heart for me. Awesome that the Holy Spirit would intercede and show them what to pray for in my life. It's a practice I think we should probably do a little bit more of. He continues, for God is my witness, and this is still part of the prayer, how greatly I long for you 
with the affection of Jesus Christ. And I pray that, you, uh, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. So from verses 10 to 11 there, we see a couple more things that are a part of that prayer. First, he prays essentially for maturity in them. He prays that their love would grow or abound is the word he uses more and more. And then secondly, he also prayed that they would develop sincerity in their character. And that's something I think as Christians that should challenge us this morning when we think about sincerity in our character. It's just about every Christian's life. I'd say probably in every Christian's life. I don't want to offend you this morning. But in every Christian's life, I would say, there is a gap between who they are and who they appear to be. Just even for some of you, it might be a small gap. For other of us, others of us, it could be a wide gap. But there's always a gap between who we are and who we appear to be. And at first, your goal is to shrink that gap, right? To be sincere. But over time, there's this temptation to just sort of accept the gap or ignore the gap or explain away that gap or even deny that it exists. But I think it's something that we should be striving for as Christians for sincerity, to be the same person that we would be in fellowship at an agape feast later on this afternoon than we would be at home when no one's around. I think that's how we would define character. In his book, Living the Christian Life, George Duncan retells a remark that he heard of a man named Fred Mitchell at his funeral, who was the chairman of the China Inland Mission. One of those speakers said, you never caught Fred Mitchell off his guard because he never needed to be on it. And Duncan called that one of the most remarkable tributes he'd ever paid or ever heard paid towards a Christian. So sincerity, something for us to write down maybe and take home with us today and do something in your home to remind yourself of that very thing, that I need to be the person here that I am at church. Then he also prayed there in those verses that they would learn to approve the things that are excellent. The key word there is excellent. You see, when you first came to Christ, basically your job was to differentiate between good and bad. And that wasn't very difficult to do because most of those things are outlined for us, are highlighted for us in God's word. But as you grow in Christ, the choices become a little bit more difficult because instead of choosing between good and bad, now we're choosing between what's good and what's best. And God doesn't just want what's good for you. He moves on to the point where he desires for you what is best. And it's been said sometimes that good can become the enemy of best. We can be involved in so many things that are neutral or even at best that they're good, but they're not necessarily what is the best kinds of things. And I think as Christians, oftentimes we can become all too comfortable settling with activities and behaviors and mindsets that are less than excellent. I hear this phrase a lot, and maybe you have too, and it goes something like this. There's nothing wrong with fill in the blank. Okay, and I will grant the point that there's nothing wrong with fill in the blank. But is fill in the blank excellent? And I think that that's the question that we have to start challenging ourselves with. We take stock or inventory of our lives and we say, here are the kinds of things that occupy my time and my activity. Are those things bad? Are those things good? Or are those things the best? And the Apostle Paul would say, hey, as Christians, as we mature, we ought to be filling up our schedules with what is excellent, again, as God would define it, not as I would define it. Because it's easy to sit back and say, well, I don't see anything wrong with whatever, and then even say, well, I think it's actually good. Well, actually, it's kind of excellent because, and you can kind of justify it, but how would God justify it in my life? I think sometimes, though, as Christians, and maybe here's the challenge and the point that we're getting to this morning, 
is that we can be in a position in life where we can't do what we think is excellent. Something constrains us. Our time doesn't belong to us fully like we'd like. We're not in a stage of our life where we're fully able to do the things that we feel like we think would be excellent, and we have to work within the confines of what God has provided for us in terms of our opportunity or our time or whatever the case may be. So, but let's look at Paul as an example, because we think of Paul as the most mature Christian man who ever lived. He's this great missionary. He heals a bunch of people, performs miracles, but he too had to work within the scope of the opportunity that God had provided for him. And if we learn nothing else from Paul, we learn that he was able to make the most of it. Verse 12, he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard. And that's interesting. The whole palace guard, it's evident, he says, and to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. So like we want to set a goal sometimes that our co-workers would know that we're Christians. Paul made it such that everybody there in that prison, that the palace guard knew his chains were in Christ, and he continues, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Did you know that boldness is contagious? It really is. Boldness is contagious. When somebody is in a situation in life where they're constrained, where they're chained, where they're locked and trapped in some kind of a situation that they don't want to be, and they still live by faith, that's contagious, and it emboldens the brethren. It emboldens the church body by watching someone else go through something along those lines. But I want you to notice that he says there that it's evident that his chains were in Christ. So Paul has this way of thinking, right? Joy comes from the way we think. So not only was Paul trusting in the sovereignty of God that allowed him to be put in that position in the first place, but he also adopts an attitude of being faithful, knowing that God was at work even in his chains. He looks at his situation, he says, all right, we know that God is sovereign. We know that all things work together for good. That's what Romans 8.28 says. So we know he's got to be working in the midst. There's got to be a reason for this. Ever been in a situation in your life where you just can't for the life of you make heads or tails about a certain situation? It's like, oh, this is pathetic. I'm gonna be the first human being to prove Romans 8.28 wrong. That somehow God won't be able to work this together for good. Maybe you're bound this morning or you feel bound. Suffering in singleness, married to an unbeliever you're chained so to speak to a kitchen sink or an office desk or even a hospital bed and the temptation i think in our minds is to think there's just no way that god is going to be able to work in this situation i am not the example of boldness. You see me in the pulpit preaching to the choir. It's easy. But in the times in which I've been in a hospital, just as an example of how it is that we can demonstrate joy, and maybe you know this to be true in your own life too. You ever been in a hospital and you're really, I mean, you don't even know what's going to happen and God just pours out a measure of grace upon you where you're smiling and telling jokes. And when the nurses and the doctors walk through and they see that, they don't understand it. They cannot understand that. It's an opportunity, it's a privilege that we have. But we sometimes can be tempted, feel a little sorry for ourselves dwell on the situation, being trapped in whatever we have to go through in life. And then you know God is 
you know, there in that situation. And, you know, we wonder where he is, but he's there. And here's the thing about God. He's very, very patient. Did you know that about God? In the midst of trial, and I'm like, okay, God will take a day or two of trial. But God is very, very patient, allowing that trial to work its purpose in our lives. And often, we don't always see what God ends up doing with it, how he works it together for good. But oftentimes we do, and it's only in retrospect that we're able to look back and go, oh, see, that's what that whole thing was about. And if I had known what that whole thing was about, I would have had a better witness along the way. I would have had a better testimony along the way if I would have just trusted him that he was working it together. And herein lies the reason for Paul's joy amidst a very difficult circumstance. He realized that everything was working for the furtherance of the gospel. Now you say, well, that's easy. He's the apostle Paul. But did the Apostle Paul have any clue at all when he wrote this letter? He's in a prison cell. He's chained in a dungeon to a guard. It's cold and dark. He can't even see the outside world. Do you think he had any clue 2,000 years later that we'd be reading this? Or that throughout the world there'd be Christians hearing this or people going to church hearing about joy in the book of Philippians? Do you think he had any clue that that was going to be the case? At the time, I would submit to you, he couldn't have fully known the impact of what was happening and neither do you when you're going through something difficult and God asks you to have joy, to demonstrate joy, a joy that comes from knowing he's gonna work it out for his glory, that it's gonna be good, that he has things under control. It's gonna work for the furtherance of the gospel. The word furtherance there means, it was a word that described how woodcutters would clear the way through a dense forest for an advancing army. And so Paul, he saw his prison sentence as a way to pave the way, to clear the way, to be able to get the gospel to people who otherwise would never give him the time of day. And so that's exactly what's happening in this particular instance. He turns his penitentiary into a platform. He turns his prison into a pulpit. He's chained, as we talked about last week, to a guard all day long, every six hours. So he's got four different guards that are going to be attached to him all day long. Now, we call that a captive audience, right? And Paul takes uh, advantage of the captive audience. So, so you're talking to someone right here who spent my career in sales before I became a pastor. You know how hard it is to get on four new sales calls a day? This is what we call lead generation. If you're going to be attached to a soldier all day long, you know how hard it is to find four people to talk about uh, Jesus too all day long. That's exactly what this is. Lead generation. And so here's what we have to do. Rather than viewing our inconveniences as inconveniences, we need to look at them as God's opportunities. Anytime you miss the bus, anytime the plane is grounded, anytime you're delayed or sidetracked, anytime you expected it to go this way and it went that way and it kind of threw you off, every time you should keep your eyes and ears open. Because in all of those instances, oftentimes, and you hear testimony after testimony after testimony about it, that those are oftentimes in which God does that to open up our eyes and ears because he has some kind of a divine appointment waiting for you. A story about a man by the name of Cliff Barrows. Cliff Barrows was Billy Graham's music and program director for about 60 years. It's interesting how the two of them teamed up initially. Barrows, as a young man, he was on his honeymoon with his new bride, and they scrounged up just enough money to buy a couple train tickets and hotel reservations. But when they arrived at their destination, they didn't have Travelocity or Expedia back then. They get out of the train, and they find that the hotel that they had booked had been shut down. So they end up, and this is their honeymoon. Can you imagine your honeymoon? They end up in a vacant room. I mean, there's nothing in it. They end up in a vacant room above a grocery store. I mean, you talk about being pumped out. <laughs> Even without a lot of money, you're kind of hoping you're going to be able to score this great honeymoon for your new bride. And so the next morning, the store owner of that grocery store, who was a Christian, he heard Cliff playing some Christian music on his trombone. And he told him about a rally that was happening there in town that night as a young evangelist was in town by the name of Billy Graham. So Barrows decided to go to that rally. 
And it just so happened, I mean, coincidence, right? Amazing coincidence that the person that was responsible for bringing the music that night didn't show up. And so they enlisted the help of Cliff Barrows, and of course, the rest is history. Could you imagine, though, if instead, this is what I would have done, I would have sulked and been upset and left town or whatever. He pulled out his trombone, was worshiping God with that instrument, and God used that to change his life and change a lot of people's lives. You see, what seemed to be a disaster was meant for the furtherance of the gospel. And by the way, no other religion in the world can even come close to beginning to suggest that anything that seems to be a setback to a human being could ever be used for good or for the furtherance of what they believe in any way, shape, or form. There is no system in the world that attempts to explain how God, outside of biblical Christianity, can use a trial or a difficulty to try to point us in the direction that he would have us go. Maybe you saw this week, and it's hard, and I know it's fresh. Maybe you saw this week that there was a gunman who entered that church there in South Carolina and took the lives of nine people. And I know it's fresh, so I don't want to focus on it too much. But when you see something like that, even as Christians, I mean especially as Christians, oftentimes, because we know how the media is going to spin the story. We know how they're going to spin the story. We know how they have spun the story. We're tempted at times to say, God, how can you allow something like that? How could you possibly allow something like that? And then things start to develop and you just give it a little bit of time, right? And, and not only do, I will guarantee you this, and I have no data, I haven't talked to anybody or whatever, I guarantee you that church is packed this morning. Because God's people rise up amidst persecution, they always do. And no matter how the media spins it, it's persecution. It's demonic perse persecution and oppression. But you know, this week was interesting. I came across a story of a gospel award-winning artist, a man who, he's about 30 years old, who for a period of his life, he was caught up in gang violence and that kind of thing. And he himself, because he was, had been shot over the course of years eight different times, somehow survived. But so punished was he by it that uh, he has, I believe, lost feeling in his legs. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. Very talented musician. But this man wrote a Facebook message on the wall of the shooter. And this is a black church, right? Predominantly black church. This gospel artist is predominantly, and he's black man also. And so he writes this letter to this apparently very racist young man. And he proceeds to, you know, correct the wrong thinking. He says things like, look, no one is born with hate. We're all born colorblind. Very true statements. But then he proceeds to say, hey, if you have your phone with you, I want you to know something. I want you to know that God loves you. I want you to know that you can ask for forgiveness of sins and God can forgive you wherever you're at at this moment in time. And then he proceeds in this message to write out for him you know, a form of the sinner's prayer to enable this killer to come to Jesus Christ. Now, how does he do that? Because he has a perspective, he has a joy, because he knows where he's going. He knows the people in that church that knew the Lord that died, it's the only good news here, is that they're in glory with our Lord right now. And then this letter goes viral all across the country. So eight people died, nine people died. I'm not trying to diminish it in any way. It's tragic as can be. But millions of people are seeing this letter, this testimony of a Christian. And I'm telling you, half or more, or three-fourths of the people that are reading this letter, 
which unveils the love of Christ through a human being amidst such a trial are people that would read this letter that would never hear the testimony of Christ that day otherwise. They would never be open to hearing a gospel presentation or a prayer of repentance otherwise. Is it possible? Is it not just possible that sometimes God even allows the worst of things to happen because he knows that he's got a plan to save souls and that's what he's in the business of doing. This was a man who wrote this letter that had a steadfast confidence in the promises of God. And that what it is what enables us to have joy in our lives. Even in the very worst of tragedies, we can be assured that God's at work. We can be assured that it went through his hands first. It's the chains, so to speak, that we've been granted or given that allow us to minister to people, to witness to people that otherwise would never hear what we have to say. To say in your heart that you want to be like the Apostle Paul is a good thing. But it's to say not only that it's a privilege to be able to know God, but to suffer for Him as well. And that cannot be just words said in some sermon or listened in some sermon because we're in church and we say amen or whatever the case may be. We have to realize that this is part of how God works in and through your life. So this morning, you may, you may have a flag that's flying at half mass and you're really going through it. Maybe so much so that even as I'm saying the things that I'm saying, it resonates with you, but you're even having a hard time being in agreement with me this morning because of the scope and the depth and the gravity of the trial that you're going through. But try to remember in the middle of this heartache, in the middle of this difficulty, that what God has given you, if you're going through something like this, is a gift that we've been given to suffer for Him and to be able to reflect joy to an unbelieving world that just might, maybe, maybe, might marvel when they see it. They might just go, what is that? I don't get that. That makes no sense to me. What is the source of that? And then if we're prayed up and we're open to the leading of the Spirit, would enable us to share with them how we can have joy that they don't have access to that cannot be explained by natural things, but only by a supernatural perspective. Father, thank you for access to joy this morning. We thank you that we can have a peace and a joy at all times in our lives, that it's not something that is grounded in circumstance or is based on having a good financial portfolio or a plan for this week or a secure job situation, Lord, but is based on our knowledge of you. Lord, we thank you that joy and peace are ours even if the world were to strip away everything that we have we'd be able to rely upon your promises to trust in the Spirit's presence in our lives, to know that we're going to heaven, to know that our sins are forgiven. And because of that, we have joy 24-7. Lord, help us not to have that joy robbed by unbelief this morning. God, as we leave here today, as we're around family members for Father's Day, some who maybe don't know you, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Even if there are those that are here, and undoubtedly there are, that are going through real tough times and such tough times that they don't even know exactly how they're gonna get through them. But we ask God that you would enable them to reflect joy to unbelievers today and that we'd be ready, God, to answer questions about how it is that we can still have that amidst such a horrible trial that they know about. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give us the power to do these things today. And we ask it in Jesus' name.